everyone. So it has been a minute since we recorded and released a podcast episode from History Unloaded with Danny and Ashley. And we are going to have a mini series this holiday season, but we wanted to do a one-off episode because it's almost Halloween and that's spooky. And we have some spooky guns that we've encountered over the years. Uh, I think the two big categories are Franken guns and skeletonized firearms. And then maybe like actual creepy guns, but we don't have a lot of those. Oh yeah, I can talk about creepy guns. Yeah, yeah. I got you. I yeah. I I have so three categories. Talk. Yeah, so three categories, and of course we could also always just throw in a little bit of Sarah Winchester. Right. Um, so that's what I was going to ask. Are you going this Halloween as Sarah Winchester? No, but I was just about to say like so. One year at the museum, I went as Sarah Winchester, and like the one photo they have of her with like the black veil and like the dress, and it was it was that the year the hell yeah it was the year that the like really historically terrible but also kind of awesome horror movie <laughs> came, came out, out with Helen Mirren. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was that year. Good, but Danny of horrors. I, I hate dressing up as Scott. I like I the idea him. of dressing up in costumes. I'm just so self-conscious that I can never actually like commit to the costume fully. So, so that year we made a joke because the original name of the movie was Winchester, the house that ghosts built. And then they took that second part out, but we made a lot of fun of it because we were like the ghosts were the built, like the ghosts were the builders, ghost builders. So I had Danny put a sheet over his head and did you write ghost? Like I feel, no, no, you had a name tag that said ghost and you walked around with a hammer. And a hard hat because we had the hard hats from the renovation. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Um, so, so that was really fun. And we can post a picture of that for people. <laughs> the stupid thing about it is that was like a niche joke within a niche joke. Cause it's not like that movie was, I mean, it was pretty popular and got some PR, but it wasn't like a total, like triple a, like blockbuster movie. And like, you have to know a lot of movie, like movie trivia to know that that movie originally started as the house that ghosts built. And they dropped that part. And that joke only makes sense with the original title. <laughs> think so i mean like people know that like like the the fake story about you know her building 24 7 you know whatever she she could have like if that story were true she could have you know worked people to death i don't know so Uh, i just walked around the museum for a day with a drape (laughs) white sheet over me and a hard hat and name tag and hammer oh and you know what i just realized that like is spoopy still a thing i don't think it is at all i think it's gone (laughs) I, i haven't seen that meme in a long time I like years ago on like Reddit or on some gun page, I saw the word spoopy and I was like, what even is this? And a typical Danny fashion, he had to like older than me, Danny, by like a year, but like had to explain my generation to me. <laughs> yeah. Um, you should probably explain what spoopy is. Cause I don't think I, I just think it was like a weird spelling of like spooky, basically, as I recall, grosser. somebody um, versed in the internet can correct us on that. So, Let's talk a little bit about Franken guns and skeletonized guns. And then I have a client that has every spooky gun on the planet. So I'll, we can talk a little bit about that. That actually would have been a better episode, but we, we can we do that merge later. We're um, merging it. All right. So, what is a Franken gun, Danny? So I think our definition of Franken gun for this episode is any gun that has been like cobbled together from bits and pieces, or at least appears that way. Um, there's a couple in the CFM collection. There is a, the first one that came to mind when we were talking, like planning our little mini season and this, and this episode 
Um, one being a gun attributed for a long, long time to Andrew Burgess, who is like one of the slightly lesser known, but really inventive um, firearms designer of the 19th century. And he's most famous for his like folding shotgun, his repeating shotgun and the, the Colt Burgess rifle that caused the whole um, Winchester Colt gentleman's agreement that we've talked about before. Um, but there's this one gun that is not really well known. I don't think anybody's done like much posting on it. We've posted it a couple of times on our social, but it's a repeater that uses a, it has a Winchester 44 cal barrel on it. It's got a bunch of other parts that may or may not have come off a of Winchester 73. Um, and then it's got this like weird mechanism on the outside of the receiver, like all these little moving bits that are hard to tell what they do. And then there's a big, like, like brass tube along the side of the gun that seems like in another life it might have been a gas tube but it's way bigger than most like gas tubes there's still the magazine tube on the gun there's still the barrel so it's got like three tubes coming out of the receiver um essentially and then yeah the like the one oversized one is just copper and if like it looks more like a gun that somebody would have invented in the last 10 years as like a steampunk thing than an actual item from the 1880s but we can you know trace it back to the winchester collection pretty far so we know it's not like a recent made-up thing um yeah and winchester always attributed it to andrew burgess and like him attempting to build a semi-automatic rifle does it sing putting on the ritz it to my knowledge it does not but i'm not here at nighttime so i don't know did you get that reference no i don't at all Young Frankenstein. I'm really bad at references. The, well, the, I'm good the, at certain references, but they're not the ones that most people. The monster from Young Frankenstein, like I think he dances with the girls. It's been a couple of years since I've seen it, and he he can't really talk, but he's like, Lawrence. like it's like it's fantastic. I love that movie. Um, yeah, and the first time I heard the term Franken gun was at, when the curator of Colonial Williamsburg came out and did uh, a presentation that he called franken guns because yeah they're just these weird modified guns and you made the point uh before we hopped on this call that like you know theoretically wouldn't you think sporterized military guns could also be considered franken guns um but then i also had a thought and we can pontificate on the first part but my weird thought was we call them franken guns falling into the same trope of everybody else which is to call the monster frankenstein and that's not true i i I see where you're going but we need to hold that thought for a minute okay so yeah that curator came out he did a presentation and really and i'd i kind of heard this term before but it was just like franken guns were guns that were you know in that I was using for the Burgess, I'm using Franken gun as a gun that just looks bizarre. Like all these parts came together to make a gun. He was kind of referring to guns, at least as I recall, that ostensibly look, you know, relatively correct. Like for his examples, like a brown bess, we'll say. But it's got the it's got a different model lock plate in it. It's got the wrong stock. Like they're all brown bess parts, but they're from different models that don't go together. Um, exactly. essentially built into a gun that's made then to just sort of be a stand-in for like, you know, and there's also the context of like in the mid 20th century, original flintlocks had all been, you know, they had really long working lives and generally most of them 
that survived into the percussion era were converted to percussion. Well, then in the 20th century, collectors didn't like that these flintlocks were percussion and had been converted. So they converted them all back and very, very often did a total hack job of it. So that's another version of Franken gun is like these reconversions that they had a working life. They got converted once. So there's some replacement parts. Then a collector in the 20th century finds just replacement parts that kind of fit and puts them all back together the way they think they should go. And there's another iteration of like wrongness. So it's like layers of parts on what was an original gun. Well, and if you think about it, if the or if some early firearms um, were made in the colonies from parts kits, right? Um, yeah, and then I mean, they're just kind of assembling that too. Yeah, the early the, a committee of committee of safety gun guns yeah. are Frankenstein's. The U.S. the the Continental not even the U.S. the Continental Army was like armed with Franken guns to fight the revolution because we just got a bunch of old parts from France and they're like, do your best. (laughs) It's very, very true. So our original guns that fought in the revolution should have been far scarier. We should have been taken so much more seriously than the British took us. If they only knew our pop culture references now. Yes, they'd be like solid. They would like it. I think so there, that's that's another genre of franking guns are like these weird cobbled together things, whether by collectors or out of necessity. Um, there's the inventive, you know, the prototypes in the collection, at least here, a bunch of those look really weird. And like that Burgess, when we don't know a ton about them, like there's this one set of um, they're not even really franking guns. They're more like um, predator versus alien because they have like it's as far as I can tell, it's a 22 rimfire, but then it has this giant spring and like recoil buffer system sticking out the back so it's like you have a wooden stock and then it kind of raises into a barrel almost like like kind of picture like a stevens like single shot falling block rifle where there's like the stock is pretty significantly lower than the receiver it kind of goes down at a sharp angle and then imagine jutting out of the back of the receiver but separate not connected to the stock just connected to the receiver a giant like rectangle, like a really heavy chunk of steel. It looks like somebody forgot to finish forging like a receiver or something. And in there is like a buffer because 22 recoil is so strong. Like, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't understand the purpose of this gun. We don't have a patent for it. We don't know who made it. It's just in the Winchester prototype collection. Um, and it looks like, it kind of looks like there's a tumor on the back of the receiver. <laughs> That's depressing. Sorry, tumor was a bad choice, but it's just (laughs) sorry. Um, But yeah, it's just a totally bizarre looking thing, and it looks like an alien gun. Um, I did not prepare alien versus predator guns. Sorry, that was a bit of a side a side route that was not there. But so we've talked about alien versus predator, which is not the theme of the episode. We talked about Franken guns in all its genres, different configurations. So our, our talking about Sarah Winchester. Yeah, we talked about Sarah. Our here's the question: Are sporterized guns Franken guns using any of our previously established genres? I mean, I, you you mentioned it before we hopped on this call, and I I hadn't thought about it, but yeah, I think they like, are. I mean, if you, if you fit the definition that it's like cobbled together parts, um, you know, it's they're firearms that have a base sometimes they're just a barreled action sometimes they're you know the the overall firearm that then gets modified new stock new sights new everything 
Um, so yeah, I think it'd be considered a Franken gun. Maybe it's a more successful monster. Yeah, you know, it's, like, it's a little you, more mainstream. He yeah, like, yeah. Like if 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 Doctor Frankenstein had gotten it right, you know, yeah. I feel like a very fancy sporterized military arm uh, is 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 getting it right because I mean, yeah, I'm sure there's lots of people who get it super wrong, but I I think that they look so good um that they were a more successful monster but then that also makes me think that what is it a franken gun if it is an assembled firearm from different parts but it's actually accurate when you put it back together or if it like looks you know if it's like you know i'm thinking like a classic military sporter in the u.s is like normally a mauser or maybe an Arasaka where like somebody has taken a, like a bring back or surplus gun of some kind, essentially gotten it down to the action only. And then they've put a new barrel cause they can't find the cartridge that that gun chambered originally. Um, especially in the case of Arasaka's and they've put on like some kind of outside third party aftermarket scope mount and scope. And so you have like what started to use the Arasaka example, we have an Arasaka receiver with like, you know, some like 300 caliber, 30 cal barrel on it. That's not seven, seven or six, five and a, you know, a newly made stock that might be made by the person or somebody like uh, Boyd's or one of those companies that makes replacement stocks. And then you have like a Weaver scope or something. I'm just trying to think of like all the 1950s, like parts that might be on a gun like that. But put it all together, and if it's nicely done, it reasonably looks like a hunting rifle, and then in some cases has served as decades as such. Well, but I mean, that goes to my point about like, is it a successful version? Because I mean, I think the ultimate goal of Frank of the Frankenstein monster was to look like a human, wasn't it? Yeah. So that one is like a successful Frankenstein. Yeah. Um, and then we should point out the skeletonized guns, even though it's so we call them cutaways, but they're also called skeletonized guns. They are called the reason we're bringing it up um, because it's not spoopy or anything. <laughs> You're trying to bring that one back. Huh? I'm bringing it back. <laughs> um yeah no i mean so the 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 cutaways they're called skeletonized guns actually i feel like when we were doing the labels i feel like the old school people that we had like we wrote cutaways and they wrote skeletonized so uh it might be a generational shift well and is there a difference when it's like the whole side is cut away like some of the early winchesters or when like different parts are like sectionalized out so you can just get like essentially like view like the bars are not cut away the whole length of the gun, whereas like the 1873 is. So is the BAR skeletonized and the 73 cut away, or is it just all old ones were skeletonized, all new ones are cutaways? Uh, well, I think it's, well, first off, why would you ask that question? Because if there's an answer, we have gotten it wrong in the museum. <laughs> uh, so how dare you? But uh, no, I wasn't saying new guns are cutaways. Oh. I, I said that like, I think it's like an interchangeable term. Oh yeah, it's like the modern term. Uh, but what we're referring to, Danny already kind of pointed it out, which is that there are firearms that either have components cut away so you can see the internal workings of the whole gun is like, you know, basically the skin is taken off the gun and you can see all the internal workings. Um, and they were used for marketing, sales, you know, all kinds of different commercial uses, uh, military uses as well. I think the BARs were for the military yeah. to understand how they worked. Um, but they just, for the purposes of this episode, they just look like, you know, gun skeletons. Yeah. I mean, they really do. Cause it's like, 
It's like when you walk in the doctor's office and there's like the human body with no skin and it's all red meat under there and bone and whatnot. That's gross. Um, I don't know. That's not a skeleton though. That's they still got the tissue. That's true. But these yeah. guns look kind of like, like they remind me of that. That you're fucked up. Oh my god! I, <laughs> I, I stand by it. Oh boy. I mean, from what you guys won't haven't heard yet, but Danny says some pretty questionable things in our mini series, especially in the first episode. So stand it, by for that. Stand by. It will all make sense in the end. So, anyways, back to the skeletonized doctor's office. Whatever <laughs> guns, the skeletonized guns. Um, like the bodies exhibit, you should yeah. totally do like a spoof on like the bodies exhibit, but with skeletonized guns. And the, in my mind, the bodies exhibit is like that poster I'm talking about. And there, we've made the link. There it is. There it um, is. So, do we want to shift to like the other half of this concept that we had not considered until you said it on the podcast? But that's artifacts that are kind of spooky. Like they're associated with cultural trauma that would maybe make people uncomfortable because this is something that Danny and I talked a lot about when I was still at the museum, which is like a lot of gun collectors and a lot of museums have, that are gun museums have actively avoided firearms that have been associated with cultural trauma. And, um, you know, especially like in more recent terms, like mass shootings and, and that kind of thing. Um, but they do exist and some people collect them because of that. Um, but I am actually working with, uh, do we have anything in the collection, Danny? Actually, let's start there. Um, I mean, the Lincoln had hammer guns kind of spooky, but it was Yeah, there's a Lincoln had hammer gun. That one is more odd than spooky to me. Um, yeah, well, I mean, but it's a little spooky because yeah. it's like a gun that was made for Lincoln and it's a portrait bust of his head as the right. hammer and right. time, you know, history will reveal that that might have been in poor taste had it been made after his assassination. We don't actually know if it was made before or after and Hiram Burdan could just be one of the creepiest dudes ever. Yeah, <laughs> that's the possibility. Yeah, some macabre there. I don't think we have anything that is like specifically tied to like a known very like like a murder weapon or um that we know about that we know about anything we have because guns that's that also are, the part that the, the the history sometimes gets lost because people don't want to focus on it right we do have guns that like are of the type and would you know like you know like guns from world war ii or something if the german guns came to winchester and their collection through the u.s military so they got captured somehow whether that was captured at a depot or off a battlefield who knows um we so have, we have certain, I, I know we have uh, like fascist marks on our firearms, on some of our firearms um, for Italian markings. Um, but do I hear where do we have Nazi marked? I mean, the, they're only like the general like inspector stamps. So, so there's like, a you know, there's the German Eagle on there. But like, you know, if they're stamping all their guns on like on that, then it's, that's not that big of a deal. I don't think we have any that are, you know, actual like SS marked or anything like that. So um you know, those are of the type. There's certainly guns that you can think about, like, you know, used in the West or, you know, U.S. military stuff that um, could have been used in conflict. Um, the only other one is um, uh, the one Colt. Um, I can't remember the guy's name right now. Is it Tobin? The Tobin Colt. Yeah. Um, he was a law. He was a sheriff. Um, and he is documented to have... Um, killed a few people and we have yes, one of his, the brothers yeah 
we have his gun. Um, but no, that's a presentation gun. That was right. And that, it's not the actual, like, it's not his like duty well, gun. So. And that's important to point out because so many museums will have like models mm-hmm. or they'll have a gun that belong to a criminal, but mm-hmm. not actually using the criminal act. Like the mob mm-hmm. museum, for example, has Capone guns, but they are just their guns. You know, it's so rare at least in my work, my consulting work, it's so rare to encounter a gun that was actually used in a crime. Like in the mob museum, there's like a ton of like, like you can get like, they have like the hammer that was used to beat someone to death, but then they have like examples of, you know, firearms. And I just think that's like, that's such a weird, much bigger conversation, you know, than, than we can get into today. But like why, you know, you can have the the other type of weapon you know and you see those pop up but you don't see the gun pop up um well, isn't it mostly the case that a lot of times like especially for high profile um like crimes the the firearms when i think of ones where i've like heard of this firearm it's almost always like the police department has like kept that gun like they just retain it you know it's it's first submitted as evidence for the trial or whatever. And then the department, they have this really notorious piece. So they just like keep it. So you teed me up perfectly, Danny. I was doing my best. Uh, Although I will say as a side, the Smithsonian does have the Kent State firearms with the evidence Mm -hmm. stickers on them. Yeah, a couple of the really high profile guns, like the Kennedy guns, the the Kent State guns have made it into like the national level collection. Yeah, and then the Ford's Theater has the Derringer that was mm-hmm. used to assassinate Lincoln. Um, and is it Library of Congress or National Archives has the Carcano rifle that was used? Uh, in the I think it's NARA, National Archives. Has it. Allegedly. Yeah. <laughs> We're going uh, there, huh? Yeah. <laughs> so, so the reason Danny teed me up is because I am actually working on a museum that has these types of firearms, and it's the. Um, LA Police Museum. And uh, it, it's really interesting because if you believe in ghosts, they believe that their museum is very haunted. Um, and they certainly have a lot of haunted artifacts, not necessarily like actually haunted, but they're they're very, you know, traumatic parts of history. Because if you think about like the like Los Angeles has been the home to a lot of different um, crimes. And so uh, these ones are there's things that are on display from the Manson family um, within the museum, uh, but the, that you mentioned the DA or the, you know, the crime guns are often a part of evidence. And so they've got some stuff on display that's Manson related, but then they also have other Manson things that haven't been permitted. Like the, the DA gives it to them, but they're still confidential if there's open cases and there is actually an open case with the Manson murders. Um, but then like, they also have, you know, archives of like all of the Marilyn Monroe investigation, which is also still confident, but it's uh, confidential. But it, as soon as they get permission, they'll display them. But the um, the other things that they've got actually on display is they've got um, Patty Hearst's M1, which I mean, it's probably not that spooky, but it's still cool. It could be your Halloween costume. You know, dress up. Like, I almost dressed up like Tanya. I almost did it. Yeah. Uh, but then they've got. Um, the North Hollywood shootout firearms and gear. So like on display, um, originally sponsored by Bank of America, which like solid, good job, Bank of America. Um, But like, so they've got, uh, they've got these two mannequins and they're super like they're, 
you know, head to toe in the clothing that they had on, the two perpetrators had on, um, covered in blood. Uh, if you look closely, although it's dark, you know, that all of the like, you know, like plating and stuff that they had, and they've got all their firearms. Um, you know, and if you're not familiar with the North Hollywood shootout, it was, you know, at the Bank of America um, and North Hollywood. And the way that the two perpetrators died um, is incredibly you know, couched in, in, in trauma, uh, the one killed himself. And then the other one refused to come out from behind the, the car. And so I think they shot him like 29 times in like the ankle. Um, and then there was a rumor that there was a third shooter. And so the, uh, crime scene was still active. So the paramedics and nobody could get in, uh, while a crime scene is still active. And so he bled to death over a uh, little over an hour. Um, and the, like, the, and they've got the photo. It's like the super creepy photo. His name is Emil. I can't pronounce his last name. It's insane. Uh, it's an insane last name, but, um, you know, where he's like, you know, he's, on the ground with his hands behind his back and he looks at the camera and it's just super haunting. Um, you know, so they've got that. They even have the, the, their car that's riddled with bullets. And then they also have the, the first car that arrived on the scene from the police. Um, so they've got like stuff like that that has been used in very traumatic ways. They've got things that are blood soaked. Uh, they also have the uh, all of the artifacts associated with the onion field murders, uh, which in a very simple thing, because I don't know a ton about it, but that was an example of when cops learned that they needed to carry backup guns because they um, some of them had their firearms taken from them and were you know basically assassinated uh, by I think maybe with their own guns, uh, you know by by criminals. And so like the whole museum has got, you know, these artifacts that because they come from, you know, the government or the LAPD, um, you know, it's the, you can guarantee that they're the real thing. They're the thing that was used in the crime and that you just don't see very often. And, you know, the LA Police Museum is autonomous from the LAPD, but because they've got that relationship, um, the chair of their board actually took uh, Richard Ramirez's first mugshot uh, when they, you know, stopped him for the car issue uh, before they knew he was a night stalker, really. Um, and so that original mugshot sitting there, it sat on his desk for his whole career. And so you know, you know, things are coming there and you know that they've actually been used in, in crime and trauma. And it's also like every Netflix, you know, cult and true crime uh, documentary you've ever seen. I mean, they actually have the objects that were used. And then to add creepiness factor to it, they've got it's in a original headquarters. And so that original headquarters, uh, you know, served as a, it was a police station. So in their felony cell, uh, someone killed themselves. And so there's a spot. Uh, you know, right that you walk by and someone had killed himself. And actually uh, my service dog Marley smelled the tissue from it from the 1940s because he kind of, he started sniffing it and service dogs don't sniff when they're walking around. And he started acting really, really weird. And I asked the search and rescue dog, um, his trainer, uh, they do search and rescue. And she said that with cement, uh, fluids can stay no matter how much you clean because it's so porous. And then also, also that like your dogs can sense when something super traumatic has happened in a place. Uh, so there's one of two ways with that. And so you've got a museum that's also dedicated to law enforcement, but it's, you know, all of their crime guns and related things it's it's spooky and they do a paranormal experience uh, <laughs> uh for it because they do believe that the site is haunted but even if you don't believe in that i mean there's an uncomfortableness of being in the presence of some of those things um the one thing i will say though is some of the stuff that they don't have on display right now um are things that were used for murder um that are not guns and i will say that like maybe it's because i'm desensitized working with firearms i'm far more creeped out by the things that were used to commit murder that were more personal like more 
face to face, um, make me like the, the one thing which I can't say, which I wish I could, but I mean, I was like uncomfortable, um, being in the presence of it. And then, you know, I could have handled it, but I was like, no, I'm good. You know, still yeah. had the tissue and everything because it's evidence. So it still had mm-hmm. everything, you know, yeah. on it. Uh, so, I mean, that is something that I think is really interesting in terms of, you know, guns and, and other artifacts associated with cultural trauma, uh, which was not what this episode was about, but it fit perfectly. <laughs> yeah, it fits pretty well. And I mean, it's like a pretty heavy topic. And I mean, I think most museums don't, a few museums lean into it, but most don't because at the end of the day, it's like, all right, I'm building myself as a museum to, uh, most museums just don't like to um, go there for lack of a better term. I feel like, you know, they, they prefer to play it cautious and, you know, there's like, there's the cultural trauma, but then there's also like the, like when you're talking about the, the North Hollywood shootout, like those, that gear, that gun, those guns, um, that thing, like that event, changed how police departments like across the country you know began to plan for and equip things like they're also really significant from that standpoint too um not to mention the trauma of like how those two um guys met their end and yeah and i mean it's the same reason like there's the you know the lincoln derringer at ford theater um i don't know has the jfk um carcano been displayed like I think it was at the Texas School Book Depository for a while, but it's not displayed anymore. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the interesting thing is that there are museums that do center on the macabre. They tend to not be nonprofits. Right. Um, they tend to be for-profit museums. So there's the Museum of Death in New Orleans, mm-hmm. which I've not been in because it's expensive and people <laughs> say it's cool. Um, and then there's Zach Baggins' Haunted Museum, which is full <laughs> of um, allegedly haunted artifacts. Zach Baggins, the host of Ghost Adventure, and it's creepy to be in there yeah. for sure. Uh, even if you don't believe it, you literally have to sign a waiver that says if you're haunted after you leave here, like you can't sue the you can't sue the museum. And then like even like the, the I think one of the creepier museums I went to is like the pharmacy museum in New Orleans, where like you're looking at like all of these like you know really gross ways that they try to treat people where they were actually poisoning them. Um, you know, and any type of early medical tools are really creepy and gross, but, um, but guns, you don't see it that often, which I think is, yeah. uh, you know, a fascinating line in the sand. Um, so we went from like very sterile objects that just kind of like have a play on words. Yeah. Like tongue in cheek. Like some... It's Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> Halloween. And now like, you know, I, you know, now I'm creeped out. So we just put our listeners on an emotional roller coaster. It was an emotional roller coaster that we hope you enjoyed. Uh, and as I said at the beginning, we are going to do a mini season uh, that starts on Black Friday and we'll release every Friday uh, until Christmas Eve. So we hope you enjoy that before while we try to come up with something for our real season. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Thanks.